Evangelism will be the test of whether or not we heed man's empty praise. We'll, start, we'll look at that tonight. Well, last week, as you know, we began a new series on personal evangelism. Put this back here. And uh, we've been excited to get into that for, for quite some time now. And, uh, and last week, when we began we just sort of acknowledged there was a lot of confusion in evangelicalism. Sometimes there's confusion in our minds when it comes to exactly what evangelism is biblically. And so we wanted to clear up some of that confusion last week in lesson one, and we called that lesson Understanding Evangelism. Understanding Evangelism, that's where we were, and we essentially were looking at two big questions. Uh, The first question was, what is evangelism according to Scripture? So, how, how, how should we define it? And the definition is pretty simple. It just Evangelism just means proclaiming the gospel. It has the idea of, of preaching Jesus. We preach about him, the good news of Christ. And the longer definition that we gave, again, just review, is that evangelism is the preaching of Christ and the confronting of idolatry. It's the preaching of Christ, and that necessarily means we confront idolatry when we, when we teach, because we want people to worship the one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And all people on the planet are worshipers. They're worshiping something, someone. And so if they're going to turn, they have to turn from their idolatry to the Lord Jesus. And so it's the preaching of Christ and the confronting of idolatry, and it has a goal. Its aim is to persuade the person that we're talking to. We want them to actually turn from the idol to Christ and initiate a life of discipleship, a life of following Christ. Conversion isn't the end. It's the beginning of their new life in Christ, of their, of their discipleship. So that was what evangelism is. And that was our first question last week. And then we also looked at how is evangelism carried out according to Scripture? So what does it look like? Does the Bible give us a framework for, for how evangelism should be carried out, and it certainly does. We learned that, first and foremost, we have to know that it's God who is the evangelist, ultimately. God is the one who is most concerned to get the gospel to the nations, and he's the one that's able to do it. And he uses us as his means. And that means is through preaching, is through bold preaching. First and foremost, we proclaim a message. People are not saved unless they hear words, truth, news about Jesus. So it's fundamentally through preaching, but it's also backed up by what? It's backed up by how we live, right? It's backed up by godly living, our lifestyles. We either confirm or deny the gospel by how we live. And so... You know, that's kind of a broad way, but if we get more specific, we also learn that evangelism happens and takes place as God gifts certain people, called evangelists, and raises those people up within the church and eventually sends those people out to plant new churches. And we learn that evangelism is carried out by the day-to-day witness of individual believers. You and I, in our spheres of influence... Um, as we're here, we gather to be built up on Sundays, Thursday nights. Um, that's a little bonus. And then we, and we scatter through the week um, in our spheres of influence, our family, our workplace, um, dorms, classes, to share that gospel, to be that, that messenger of good news. So that was last week. If you missed it, it's online. Lesson one, understanding evangelism. And now with that framework, as we started to, to kind of clear up the haze, maybe, about what evangelism is and isn't, we can begin to think about actually sharing the gospel. All right? So that's, that's kind of the second message here. But we're, when we think about sharing the gospel, I don't know about you, but we're immediately confronted with another obstacle, or maybe set of obstacles, aren't we? So maybe we're not confused anymore, but when we actually think about sharing the gospel with our friends, sharing the gospel with family, co-workers, What's the obstacle? Fear. fear. Fear is the obstacle, right? When you just envision that situation of that unbeliever in your life, and you think, I'm going to come to them and share the gospel. Do you get butterflies? Do you feel the palms starting to get sweaty a little bit? 
Even the mere thought of sharing the gospel, and especially exposing idolatry, makes even the boldest in here a little bit nervous. But, what are we afraid of? Fear of man, yeah? Rejection, yep. We're afraid of everything. Afraid of everything, right? I mean, there's just anything we can be afraid of, we're afraid of it. We're afraid of ruining a family get-together by speaking up about Christ. Or at least making it awkward because somebody gets upset. We often want to keep the peace at all costs. Or we're afraid of what others might think of us at work. We're bold with the gospel. Will they think I'm judgmental? Will they think I'm stupid? Will they think I'm narrow-minded? Will they be offended? Will they claim I'm abusing them or denying their identity? Will they make my job harder? Will they complain to the management? I might be overlooked for the promotion, or worse, I could lose my job. How would I support myself if that happened? Or we're afraid of losing a friendship, possibly even a friend group, right? I might be overlooked. My friend group might leave me. If I have to confront the sin of somebody who claims to be a believer, but they're not showing fruit, will they get so offended at me they'll never talk to me again? I don't think I could handle that. What if they start making fun of me and they start telling everybody at school that I'm legalistic? Who else would hang out with me? Or we might be burdened for a particular people group, let's say Muslims in Iran, and we might consider relocating. We might be considering relocating there to work or to, if you're a pastor, you're going to do pastoral ministry there. Church plant. But we heard of somebody that in that church was just imprisoned for sharing the gospel. Well, what happens if that, if that happens to me? Or we might just be afraid that as we share, we're going to get something wrong about the message. We might not know the gospel as clearly as we want to know it. And so somebody won't be saved that otherwise could have been because we're going to mess it up. It's going to be on our hands. And that fear might cripple us from sharing it all because we're afraid of failing. So like I said, in almost every situation that we can envision when it comes to sharing the gospel, fear is close at hand, isn't it? And although fear isn't the only hindrance, I think it's the greatest one that we face. Fear is the great enemy of faithful evangelism. So, this means if we're going to be consistently faithful to evangelize, then we need some biblical motivation, don't we? Motivation to address fear. Motivation to believe the truth and to act on the truth that we know. So that's what tonight's all about. We're going to dedicate an entire message just to motivating evangelism and how the Bible motivates us to share the gospel. And if we're going to be motivated to overcome fear, then three things have to happen. Maybe we'll call it three musts. Three things have to, have to happen for us if we're going to be faithful, consistent, joyful in sharing the gospel and seeing fruit. And the first one is this, kind of coming out of what we just said, you must identify and repent of your personal idols. You must identify, so you've got to know what they are, and repent, and you've got to turn from them Got to upend these idols. Now you might be thinking, now hang on. Time out. You're just talking about fear. You said fear was the greatest threat to our evangelism. Why did you say idols here? Well, the reason is this Almost every fear we just talked through is a form, and somebody said it, is a form of the fear of man. That's what the Bible calls it, the fear of man. The fear of man isn't just being scared of people, kind of like a kid scared of the dark. That's, that's not all that the fear of man is. It could include that, just the general fear. But when we fear people in this biblical sense, we put them in the place of God. We fear them instead of fearing God. They control us instead of God controlling us. 
We love what people can give us more than what God can give us. We want people's approval more than we want God's approval. We did a whole series on this, so if this is new, if this is new to you, what we're going to talk about, I'll direct you back to that, because it's a, I think it was four parts on, on the fear of man. But we show, it shows you how it, it shows up here in evangelism. We want people's approval more than God's approval. And Richard Baxter, an old Puritan pastor, he's one of my favorites, and I say his name a lot, um, he called it idolizing man. So there's our idolatry term. Idolizing man, or setting man in the place of God. And Ed Welch says it like this, we replace God with people. So in other words, the fear of man is idolatry. We worship people, or we worship what people can give us, and people are a false god. They're great. They're in the image of God. We love people. We are people. But we're not God, and we should not worship people. Now let's think about how this connects to evangelism, fear of man, idolatry to evangelism. When we idolize something, we want it at all costs. That means that we will sin to get it. We will sin to keep it. We will sin if we don't have it. And if we're worshiping something or someone other than Christ, then we won't speak about Christ because to speak about Him might threaten our idol. It might threaten what we really love. So listen to how one pastor put it. He was talking about himself. He said, So for as long as Jesus is not my greatest love, I will keep quiet about him because I am afraid of losing my greatest love, my idol. Unless I have identified and am uprooting the idols of my heart, I still won't actually get across that pain line. That just means that point of awkwardness in conversation. I still won't get across that pain line and tell people about Jesus, and neither will you. That's from this pastor named Rico Tice, the book Honest Evangelism. So far I've read several books. This is the best one I've read on the subject. And the same guy gives an illustration, he gives a a really a gripping example of how the fear of man played out in his own life in his failure to evangelize. And I want to read it to you uh, because he says it so well. He says, we all have moments in life we wish we could rewind and do things very differently. For me, the thing I most regret is what happened before my grandmother's death, or rather what didn't happen. My grandmother died absolutely convinced that God would accept her because she was a good person. She had no faith in Christ. My brother and I were the only Christians in the family at that point, and my brother broke down in tears when he did the Bible reading at her funeral. I was the only one who knew why. She had died without Christ. And here's what I regret. In the week before my grandmother died, I did not speak to her about Jesus. I loved her, but I didn't say anything to her. When my older grandmother had died, I'd taken her hand and prayed with her, but not that grandmother. I just let her go. Why didn't I tell her about Christ? I've come to realize that I was afraid of what she'd say. And I was afraid of what my family would say because I knew they'd think it was inappropriate and unhelpful. I was afraid. I love my grandmother, and she loved me, but the hard truth is that I love myself more than her. I wanted my family to think well of me more than I wanted her to think of Christ as her Savior. And that's why I didn't speak to her. I loved myself more than I loved her and more than I loved my Lord. And that means my family's respect And having an easy time in life had become idols to me. There has to be something in our hearts that we make the most important thing in life and to which we sacrifice other things to have or keep it. If that something isn't God, then it's an idol. Idols can be good things that God gave us to enjoy. The problem comes when we elevate them to divine status, when we love them more and we think we need them more. We think that we need them more than Him. And when it came down to it, the hard truth was that I wanted my family to respect me 
more than I wanted to bring Jesus glory or to see my grandmother saved. It was my idol, a good thing elevated into a divine thing, and I was so afraid of losing it that I kept my mouth shut. Now that's heartbreaking, but it gets at the significance of how the fear of man can prohibit us from being faithful in sharing the gospel. So let's, let's take a moment and categorize some of these kinds of idolatrous fears. We've got the fear of conflict. And I put another statement on there. Or the love of peace. Now the example that we just read would fall into that category. He didn't want to cause conflict in his family. and He wanted everyone to think well of him in that, in that sense. He wanted to keep the peace. Things might get tense in these scenarios, and we don't, we don't want that. We don't like that. Now, no one likes conflict, but we're tempted in this, in this category to idolize a conflict-free existence. We think that the presence of conflict, especially conflict around the gospel, is bad, when that's not necessarily the case. Fear of conflict or love of peace. There's another category here, and we could call it the fear of rejection or the love of significance. I think someone said this a moment ago. We fear being rejected. Sometimes we're scared to death of being rejected and alone by friends or family. In some cultures, believers are disowned when they publicize their Christian life. But for us, many times we love being significant. We love feeling included. And we can't stand the thought of risking that for Jesus. So fear of rejection, love of significance can can keep us from sharing the gospel. There's also the fear of mockery or the love of praise. Other times it's not outright rejection that we're afraid of. I remember in in college I lost a group of friends because I became a Christian, began following Christ, and they were professing Christians. And it hurt, but it wasn't debilitating. But to be gossiped about in the workplace or, or constantly made fun of by that group of friends that have now rejected you, that's a different story. And it may be a little more tempting for you to try to avoid as you keep your mouth shut for Christ. So fear of mockery, love of praise could be a hindrance. Fear of physical harm, or we might call it a love of life and comfort. Sometimes there's a physical cost to sharing Christ. And often we want to avoid that. Again, in some cultures, persecution or imprisonment for sharing your faith is a real threat. And it's starting to to get closer and closer to to home here in the United States. Canada just passed a law that recently, uh, they just passed a law recently that criminalizes sharing the gospel in some some contexts. You guys seen that? Um, It's like an anti-conversion law. I don't remember the, maybe Dewey can help me out here. Remember the, the name of the bill? Don't remember it. He's from Canada. Um, I have a pastor, a guy that graduated with me uh, from Expositors who's, who's shepherding in Canada, uh, pastoring in Canada, and they were talking through this a while back. But it has to do, my understanding is correct, has to do with um, like conversion therapy. So even if someone has made a gender transition or they're, they're trying to get back out of that because they realize it's bad, it is illegal for a pastor to meet with them and talk with them about Jesus because um, they're repressing their identity. Even if the person seeks out the counseling from the pastor, it's, that's still a, a criminal act by that pastor. It's the most radical anti-conversion law uh, in the West to date. And we're not that far off in the U.S. We'll get into that now and why that's likely coming down the pipeline. But at this point, for us, the, the cost comes in being canceled or losing employment because of our commitment to Christ. We love our standard of living. And our silence about Christ often reveals that we trust in our money and not the God who provides the money. So riches I heed not. The next time you sing that, Think about this. Do you heed not riches? And does your evangelism prove it? 
So where are your idols? Where are your false hopes? Think through your opportunities to evangelize and examine the fear that pops up in your heart when you do. We all get anxious about these scenarios. I do too. But what are you afraid of? Because when you can identify that, that's the first step. Identify where the battleground is. Okay, wow, it's that thing. Or get a, get a believer to, together with you and help them, help them help, let them help you think this through. Identifying the idol is half the battle, and now it's time to supplant it with Christ. But how do we do that? Well, we supplant it by yielding to King Jesus and to his words. That's how you supplant an idol, as you come to the true king. But to yield to the king, you have to know what the king says. We need his convictions, his truth, settled down in our hearts. And who does the settling? The Holy Spirit, as we meditate and pray. We need the Holy Spirit settling these truths down into our hearts, into into conviction status. And that's our only hope for battling a controlling, controlling fears like this. But as they do, as these truths, as we internalize some of these truths, that's going to enable us to speak boldly about Jesus. Won't mean we won't be scared, but it gives us something to stand on and step out on in faith. So that leads us to our second thing that we must do is we must understand and internalize key convictions. We need to understand truth. And we need to internalize these, these truths, and I'm calling these key convictions that will motivate us to evangelize. Now, there's so many of these that we can mention. I think at one point today I had 12. I didn't reduce them by that much, so don't get, don't get too excited. <clears throat> I try to include the ones that are most motivating for evangelism, for me in particular, and what I see motivating the people in Scripture. All right, so... Since we just talked about the fear of rejection, let's start with this one. And we'll call it the blessing of rejection. The blessing of rejection. And you can turn, once you finish writing, you can turn to Luke 6. The blessing of rejection. From Luke 6. Now, we have the fear of rejection, right? We've struggled with that. Well, contrary to our own assessments, Jesus did not consider it bad to be rejected. And I'm glad he didn't. He didn't consider it the worst thing in the world to be excluded or even made fun of. In fact, he said that when it happens, it reveals that you are blessed by God. Look at Luke 6.22. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Okay? Not because you're a jerk. Okay? It's on account of the Son of Man. Because you're a Christian. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. So Jesus says that rejection for Christ's sake, being made fun of, being gossiped about at work, being thought of as weird in your family, even being hated, this reveals that you're blessed. Huh? (laughs) Is that how you think? What does it mean to be blessed, okay? Well, it means you're not cursed. You're in the realm of life, the blessing, the realm of God's favor, the realm of the kingdom. To be blessed means you are a member of the new creation that's coming. You'll inherit a fortune when Christ returns. Your future is one of unspeakable joy. That's what it means to be blessed. doesn't mean you're going to get wealthy in this life. could mean that. Not the word blessing itself, but that could happen to you. But blessing means you are 
out of the realm of death and curse. You're in the realm of life and blessing. And you inherit all of what's coming in Christ. And when you face rejection for sharing Christ, do you immediately rejoice because you're blessed? Is that how you think about that scenario? Rejection is an occasion for excessive joy. We're tempted to think rejection for Christ's sake is the worst thing for us. But Jesus said it confirms that we are blessed. It reveals that you really are following Christ, that you really are on the path of blessing. But the opposite is also true. Notice what Jesus says down in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If every unbeliever you know speaks well of you, Jesus says, watch out. If unbelievers can cozy up to you without, ever, without you ever warning them of what's coming, Jesus says you may be in the woe category. And that's not good. That's the opposite of being in the blessed category. He's saying you may not be a disciple of Jesus. There is judgment coming for you unless you repent. It may reveal you've never truly turned from your fear of man and your love of their approval because you're unwilling to say anything about Christ. So it's incredibly important that we think rightly and truly about the significance, the blessing of being rejected for Christ's sake. Jesus says we're blessed when it happens. We're not cursed. Kind of counterintuitive. And this conviction will help us face rejection in faith. It'll help us overcome fear. But notice here that Jesus just doesn't, he doesn't just tell us to rejoice in a vacuum because they're getting hammered in the workplace. Just, just rejoice. He tells us why we should rejoice. He gives us what turns out to be another conviction that we need, and we can call it the promise of reward. The promise of reward. Notice that Jesus says in verse 23 that we should rejoice because, you see that word? Verse 23? Because our reward is great in heaven. We're still in Luke 6. Luke 6, 23. We should rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. The implication here is that because we're faithful to open our mouths when it costs us, that it not only reveals that we're blessed, but it also means that we will be rewarded for it. And notice, it's not just rewarded, as though, I mean, that's sweet in and of itself, but it's to be greatly rewarded. See a little modifier? The reward is great in heaven. I mean, I would have been content with just, you will be rewarded in heaven, but your reward will be great in heaven. And this is huge, Okay? Later in the Gospel of Luke, this same Gospel, Jesus tells a story in chapter 19. He tells a story about a king and his servants that was meant to parallel Jesus and his followers. The story goes like this. There was a king. He was going away for a while. He left his servants a small amount of money, not much, just a small amount, one mina, to be invested. And the king's goal was that they would invest that for a profit. The king would return, he would evaluate how they invested, and then he would reward them on that basis. When the king came back, he gave them the reward. And he rewarded lavishly. It was lavish. It wasn't some miserly reward. He lavishly rewarded those who had been faithful with their puny little amounts of money. He gave them authority over multiple cities. So the one guy who had one mina, he invested it, it made ten minas. The king comes back and says, oh, great job. You, you, had, you made ten minas. You get ten cities. Ten minas is not that much money. <laughs> and the principle is whoever is faithful in little will be faithful in much, and he will be rewarded with much. And the much is not in this life, it is in the kingdom 
that's coming. He gave them authority over multiple cities. And the point for us is that our little puny attempts to be faithful, including our puny little attempts to be faithful in sharing the gospel when we're scared, that's going to result in an incredible, mind-blowing reward in the new creation. And the point that it's in heaven isn't that it's some far-off, esoteric blessing that we're never going to really be able to access and we can't really envision. The idea of heaven is it's untouchable. It cannot be taken from us. It will most surely come to us. And knowing that an evaluation and reward is coming is crucial in our fight to be faithful in sharing the gospel. So when's the last time you thought about the day that you will stand before Christ to give an account of how you spent your life? Think about it this week? Is that on your radar? Like just, I'm going to stand before Jesus to give an account for what I did today. When's the last time you made a decision in the here and now to accrue a greater reward for yourself in the kingdom to come? The kingdom that's eternal, the kingdom that will not pass away. Does that affect your decision making? Like now? Like today at school? Tomorrow? This joyfully dominated Paul's thinking. He said whether he lived or died, he made it his goal in life to please the Lord. This is your third text here, 2 Corinthians 5. He made it his goal to please the Lord. Why? He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, Paul thought about that day. And it motivated faithfulness in the here and now, he said. But now watch how he ties this, this standing before Jesus, to evangelism. Next verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Did you see that? The fear of the Lord is this idea that we're going to stand before Him, and I'm not going to be judged, I'm not going to be cast into hell, but I'm going to stand before Him, and there's going to be a reward or lack thereof, given. And that should induce some good kind of fear of like, hey, I'm going to get after it. Live my life for what matters today. And so knowing that fear of the Lord, he says, knowing that that day is coming, we persuade others. We live a life that's full of this ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 10-11. And when this becomes a settled conviction for us, when we renew our minds each day to remember there's a reward coming, in another and more permanent world, when we remember that we need to live for that world, that's the truth we need to embolden us to overcome fear in the moment and share Christ. The worst that can happen to us now can't even pale to the, to the reward that's coming. If I, share the, if I share Christ and I die for sharing Christ today, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead and live eternally in the kingdom with Christ and will be rewarded for that greatly because I gave my life for the sake of Christ. We have to be living for another world. And that's when we will be faithful in evangelism. And as we're talking about what's to come then, that leads us to yet another conviction that must be settled in our hearts, and that is, I should have bumped that back out, sorry. No, that's right. I got confused my own outline. The reality of heaven and the reality of hell. Not only do we need to be convinced that we're going to stand before the Lord and receive a reward, but we need to be convinced that there really is heaven and there really is a hell. It's sobering to think that in a few short years, every single one of us will be dead. You probably don't think about that much because you're young. In a, few sh- in a few more short years, all of our children will be dead. The Bible says that life is a vapor, James 4.14. And that those who are wise, they number their days. Psalm 90.12. What means number our days is not some like morbid fixation on death. It means we know that we're a vapor. 
We know that our life is 70 or 80, you know. That's what the psalm says, Psalm 90. And so we number them, and we live accordingly. Give us a mind, give it, you know, it says, teach us to number our days, Psalm 90 says this, so that we may have a heart of wisdom. So that's sobering to know that that's, that's coming. Death is coming. But another and even more sobering reality is that every human being will be resurrected and will live forever in one of two places. They will live a life of eternal joy with Christ in heaven and as heaven and earth merge in the new heavens and new earth. Or they will live a life of eternal torment without Christ in hell. One of two options. So let's think first about the new heavens and the new earth. If you were going on vacation to a wonderful place, it was far better than the doldrums of Lynchburg. And it was free to anyone who wanted to come with you. Would you tell them about it? And you think, well, would it be crowded? (laughs) All right, that's where the illustration breaks down. No, it would not be crowded. Of course you would tell them about it. Well, the new heavens and new earth, this is the greatest place imaginable. John describes it in Revelation 20 through 22, beginning with the millennial kingdom, then into the new heavens and the new earth, God is there. Christ walks among His people in perfect fellowship. The earth is renewed and teeming with eternal life. We will be with Him, taking dominion of this new world in unimaginable ways. As one author said, we've barely begun to experience the blessings of the Christian life today. We've barely begun. We have a foretaste, but that's it. He said like this, he said 99.9% of it is yet to come. God will certainly make all things right as He intended from the beginning and that culminates in the new heavens and the new earth. And the best part about it is that anyone can come and enjoy with you for free because of what Christ has done. Listen to the open invitation at the end of the book of Revelation. It's after Revelation 20 through 23. It's at the end of 23. And it's a sort of open invitation after he has described the wonderful new creation. Revelation 22, um, excuse me, at the end of Revelation 22. Uh, 22 17. Here's what it says The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes, take the water of life without cost. Without cost. He's alluding to many of the prophets, including Isaiah here. But the Spirit is beckoning, come, the bride, that's the church. People are already experiencing this. Say, come, come, enjoy this. Drink water without cost. Why? Because Christ has already obtained it for us. The best part about the new world is that anyone can come with you for free because of what Christ has done. So how do you think about the new earth? When you think about it, does it excite you? Do you long for it? Or is it kind of hazy to you? You're not really sure about what all this new life entails. You know, hell is bad, but you're not really sure about the new earth or what that's going to be like, and so you don't really long for it. Well, the more clearly we understand what's coming, the more clearly we understand the glory of it, the goodness of it, the more we will share the hope of Christ with any who will listen. And similarly, we should have equal convictions about the grim and heart-wrenching reality of hell. Forcing ourselves to think about it And to believe what the Bible says about it will force us to live our lives differently. The Bible describes hell as a place of suffering. It uses the imagery of fire. It's called a blazing furnace by Jesus in Matthew 13, 42. 
In Revelation 20.10, it's called the lake of fire. And the point of the imagery is that hell is a place of torment. It's a place of agony and suffering because of people's refusal to repent and bow the knee to Christ. It's because they refuse to stop suppressing the truth, to stop idolizing the things that are not God. And people there will weep in regret. They will gnash their teeth in anger at the Lord. Matthew 13, 42. It also describes hell. The Bible describes hell as a place of of justice, a just punishment for the wicked. As hard as it is to stomach, no one will accuse God of injustice or being unfair on that day. Let's give you an example. Luke 16, there's a rich man who is in hell and he never accuses God of anything. That whole interchange. He simply asks for mercy from Abraham. Have mercy on me, he says. What does that mean? He knows he's there justly. Have mercy. Send someone to me, he says, with a a drip of water on his finger for my tongue. He doesn't even ask to be let out. He knows he's supposed to be there. No one will object to the judgment on that day. Over and over in the book of Revelation, plagues come, the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, and he extends and extends and extends his mercy and opportunities to repent, and the more judgment that comes, the more wrath that's poured out on the world, the harder the unrepentant become. They refuse to repent. They dig their heels in at the opportunity. And John tells us then in Revelation, for those that have refused and refused God's gospel, He says that hell is for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Revelation 21.8. So hell is a place of justice. And if all that were not enough, the Bible describes hell as a place of eternal torment. John says in Revelation 20.10, it is a lake of fire where the unrepentant will be, quote, tormented day and night forever and ever. There are no more chances. People's decisions to reject the Lord are final and irreversible on that day. And I remember I was just thinking back uh, today on my my life and testimony, and I just thought back to when I was a young believer. <clears throat> I was full of fear, man. I mean, I was plagued by it. Still am at times. But this, it was this reality, reality that, about hell that drove me to share the gospel among my extended family members. We would have lunch every other Sunday. I would kind of grab the table that had the people I knew were not saved and would just kind of take a deep breath <laughs> And just pray and, and try, to, try to mix it up with the gospel. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know what I was saying. But it was this, this reality that drove me. Some of these people were wealthy. They were self-assured of their own goodness. Some were homosexuals. And having been recently rescued from a life headed toward hell, I tried to help them see that they were living lives of sin and that their sin was really an offense toward God. It's an awkward family, family afternoon. And... To make it worse, I was young and ignorant. Didn't really know how to have a lot of tact in some of these conversations. I wanted them to know Christ and escape hell. And there was a lot of fear of man, but but my my conviction about hell trumped my fear of what they might think. I remember my mom pulled me aside one, one day after that had happened, and it was just, you know, I was gracious, but it was awkward. And she's like, Clay, you don't, you're not, it's not like on you to like, win these people. And I was like, Mom, if I don't, if I don't share with them, like, who is? And they're headed, they're, headed toward, they're headed toward this place of unspeakable torment. 
And it's not just hell, but it's our understanding of heaven and the new creation that will help each of us overcome the fear of man to share the good news with other people. We must be convinced that our friends and family and co-workers will live forever in one of two places. We must allow this to trickle down into how we live and how we share the gospel with them. Now, as we're speaking about our particular friends, your particular family, your particular co-workers and roommates, this leads us to another incredibly encouraging conviction that we need to have about God, and it's this. It's a conviction about the providence of God. The providence of God. Now, providence is one of those big words that we should define. And I'll try to be simple here. It's the teaching of Scripture that describes God's preserving and governing of all creation. Pretty simple. Providence is God's preserving and governing of everything. All creation. Everything He's made. His preservation and government of everything. Or we could say it like this. It's his influential activity in everything that happens. It's his influential activity in absolutely everything that happens. From the smallest things like casting of a lot, Proverbs 16.33, to some of the greatest things like the rise and fall of empires, Daniel 2.21. God is in control of it all. He's providential over it all. He cares for, preserves, governs all of creation. And that includes our lives in every aspect of our lives. So that means He chose what family that you would be born into. That means he also chose your job if you have one. He chose those co-workers next to you. He even chose what desk you would sit at. He chose your roommates in college. He chose your next door neighbors in your apartment. In Acts, Paul tells the Athenians that God has determined the boundaries of nations, and he says kind of where people live, Acts 17, 26. So we can keep applying that on down. Your next door neighbor or roommate is no accident. It's God's doing. And He has saved you so that you can be a light in both your words and your life to those unbelievers He's providentially placed around you. Now this should encourage us. This should fill our sails with with wind, so to speak. I'm in this. Because as scary as your gospel opportunities may be, God has planned them beforehand. They're part of the good works that He's prepared for you to walk in. Ephesians 2.10 And this will transform how you see your life. You'll see everyone in your path as a potential opportunity appointed by the God who makes no mistakes. And this should embolden us to overcome fear, knowing that God has put each of us on the planet in our particular spheres of influence for such a time as this. Use the language of Esther. This means He's behind us with us as we share. And not only is he providentially involved, but he's also got the power to make things happen. So we've got to know the power of God when it comes to evangelism. The power of God. So when it comes to sharing the gospel, sometimes we're tempted that we might get some aspect of the gospel wrong, like we said at the beginning. You know, or it might not work if we share it. What if I'm not persuasive enough? What if they ask a question that I can't answer? When I share the gospel, it doesn't seem to work, or I I don't seem like I can actually convert anybody. Like, what's what's going on? Well, you're right. You, You can't convert anyone. Because that's not your responsibility. Praise the Lord. We need to realize and believe that God's power is infinite. And that it's His job to bring a dead sinner to life. We speak, and God converts. 
Good way to summarize. We speak, God converts. In Acts 16, Paul speaks the gospel to a woman named Lydia at a prayer meeting. As Paul is preaching, notice what's said about her. Okay, this is Acts 16. Did I put the reference here? Yeah. He's preaching, and here's what it says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Read it again. Paul's preaching. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So, a little review. Who did the preaching? Paul. Who did the opening of the heart? God. What does opening of the heart mean? It means that he enabled her to believe the gospel. Because it says in the very next verse, she was baptized. The reason she paid attention to what Paul said was because God opened her heart. She's baptized, and she's immediate, she immediately becomes hospitable to this missionary team. So one pastor in our network, pastor that I know, he was training some of his seminary guys, and he was teaching them to kind of preach evangelistically. And he told them he was going to take them out to share the gospel, kind of like open-air evangelism. So they loaded up the van, they took to the road, and the men were surprised when this pastor, he pulled up into a graveyard. He told everybody to get out, and they followed him into the center of the courtyard. And he said, all right, who's going first? And they were like, what? Like everybody was confused. He said, I want you to preach to these people, these dead people, and tell them to come to life. Nobody moved. He said, come on, he said, what's wrong? They're dead, one of them said. He said, exactly. The point of his preaching exercise was he wanted them to realize that in all their evangelistic efforts, they are ultimately powerless to raise the dead in their preaching. God must attend their preaching and God must regenerate the spiritual dead. The same is true for us. And yet God promises to exercise His power through us, through these weak little vessels. Earthen vessels, what Paul called himself. Cracks all in it. He promises to save His people through the weakness of preaching. Even though this method is particularly humbling for Paul, it's a humbling method, he was not ashamed of it. Why? Because he knew, according to Romans 1.16, he knew that the gospel is the very power of God for salvation. He knew that conversion was not his job ultimately. He was free to merely be a faithful messenger to declare the gospel and its implications to all who would hear. And whoever believes is up to the Lord. Doesn't mean he doesn't persuade, try, expend himself. He does. But he knows ultimately, if anybody's going to come to faith, if anybody's going to be raised from the spiritual dead, God has to do the raising. And this is incredibly freeing for us. Because we don't have to resort to manipulation tactics or clever marketing schemes to win people to Jesus. We don't even have to know all the philosophical arguments or have answers to all of their questions. But what we do need is clear conviction in the power of God and to know that He will use us however He sees fit and enough boldness to open our mouths about the truth in Jesus. That's our responsibility. And the rest is the Lord's. It's a sweet parable about the farmer who he sows the seed and he goes to sleep. Sow and sleep. Sow and sleep. He says the seed grows and he, and he knows not how. We're the farmer. We sow and we sleep. And closely related is really another conviction that will embolden us in evangelism, and that's knowing the purpose of God. We're almost done here. 
closely related to the power of God and the providence of God, okay? And it's the purpose of God, knowing the purpose of God. What is His purposes? What do I mean? I mean that God has His purpose and it is unstoppable. Rich has been teaching us about this in the will of God. No one can thwart God's sovereign will and that includes, catch this, whom He will save. God has chosen whom He will save in shorthand, his elect, that's all that word means, is his chosen ones, his elect, and this conviction that God has chosen and will bring them to salvation, this conviction fuels endurance in evangelism. It is misapplied, grossly misapplied, When you say, God's got his elect, therefore I don't need to evangelize. Paul would slap you. In love, but he would slap you. That's not how this doctrine is meant to be applied. It's meant to embolden our evangelism. How do I know that? Okay, well, toward the end of his life, the Apostle Paul was imprisoned for the gospel. We say that just kind of casually. It was, it, was, it was brutal, okay? He was in prison for the gospel. Timothy, his disciple, was discouraged. But Paul wrote him what was probably his last letter, about to die, for the sake of Christ. He wrote him probably what was his last letter, trying to encourage him to suffer well and to keep at the work. Not to be ashamed of the gospel. And Paul had endured much, but he kept on evangelizing, even in prison. He's like, I'm in chains, he says in 2 Timothy, but the gospel's not bound. You know, he's just like, can't keep it contained. You know, Paul's probably one of those crazy dudes in, in prison. He's just continuing to, full of joy, sharing the gospel. He knew how to renew his mind. And I think he wanted to let Timothy in on his conviction, on how he kept going like that. He says in 2 Timothy 2.8, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything. Why did he endure beatings? Why did he endure imprisonments? Why did he endure stonings? Notice what he could have said. He could have said, I endure for the chance to preach to the unsaved. That's true. But that's not what he said. He said, I endure for the sake of the elect. Why do you say it that way? In other words, in Paul's mind, God has his people marked out beforehand, chosen, They haven't believed yet. But they will. So Paul is willing to undergo tremendous suffering because he knows that success in his efforts are sure, whether he's in prison or not. These unbelievers that God will save are his elect, they're his chosen ones. Paul doesn't know who they are, but the Lord does, and the Lord has purposed to use Paul's preaching to bring his elect to faith. And that fueled Paul's endurance. It fueled him to overcome the fear of persecution. It fueled him to keep on opening his mouth when he was staring out a barrel. And he wanted to pass that conviction on to Timothy. And we want to receive it ourselves tonight, knowing that God has His purposes. This emboldens us too. If the transgender person that you work with is elect, if God has purposed to save him, even though he hates God right now, guess what? The seeds of the gospel you're sowing will bear fruit. He will use you to save him. He'll likely use others too in the process. 
And like Paul, we have no idea who is or is not elect. That's not our, that's above our pay grade. That only becomes visible. The elect become visible as they believe the gospel, as they turn from their idols to serve the one true and living God, like Paul says in 1 Thess 2 through 5. We know that you're chosen, he says, because our gospel came to you in power. In other words, because you believed. That's how we know. And Paul says, I endure it all. I keep going in evangelism when it's hard. I stay in prison for the sake of the elect. All right, last conviction. This last and arguably the greatest motive for evangelism is this. When we have a deep love and longing for the glory of Christ. I'm out of time, so we'll be brief here. As we grow in understanding all that God has accomplished through Christ, we long for Him to be worshipped among every tribe and tongue. We are grieved when we see other image bearers pandering after idols. When we see them putting everything they have into these false hopes that have deceived them and will lead them to destruction. And we want thanksgiving and praise and honor to go to the triune God because He deserves it. And He's the only one who deserves it. Because there is no God like our God. And Paul obviously certainly felt this way. Jesus, every, everyone um, in the Bible, this was a driving motive for them. Uh, just kind of, a, of an interesting one is in Acts 17. He gets to Athens and he sees something. He sees the idolatry. His spirit's provoked. He's righteously angry at the idolatry. And that's what motivated him to get in there and mix it up with the Athenians. To begin reasoning with them and talking about the resurrection of the dead, they kind of mocked him for it. But he got a hearing the next day, and he just was going at it. And he tells us, Luke tells us why in Acts 17, 16, because he saw the idolatry and his spirit was provoked within him. He cared about the glory of Christ. He cared that Christ was not worshipped in Athens. That temple was there with all those false gods. Romans 1, 5 talks about, he's, talk, he's laying out his book to the Romans and he says he does it all for the sake of his name. Talking about Christ. His missions, efforts. He's evangelizing. He's going to Rome to preach the gospel. It's for the sake of his name. He wants to see Gentiles and Jews become obedient to Christ for the sake of his name. Ephesians 3.21, his prayer is that God would receive glory through the church. Christ would receive glory through the church as the church is saved, built up, resembles Jesus, ultimately that God gets the glory. And obviously Revelation 5 is everyone singing about the glory of, of Christ, what He deserves because of what He's accomplished. So the glory of Christ needs to be a reigning motive of our hearts. And that's really the culminating motive um, in evangelism. So as you understand, we need to understand how worthy Christ is. The implication if there's not a burning desire for Him to be glorified in your life, you don't understand Him. You don't understand Him like you ought. Because when you do, it will motivate you to overcome fear and speak for the sake of His name. And finally, alright, three musts, last one, going to end here. We've got to commit to act by faith. So you're saying, okay, I've, no, I've, I've identified my idolatry. I know where I'm afraid. Hey, man, you've just drowned me in convictions. Okay? I get it, you know. Maybe I don't get it, but I'm going to get it. Okay, here's these convictions. But I'm still scared. I'm still scared. Yes, you are. And you will be. Probably every time. But now you have something to stand on. Point two is your foundation. And what I'm saying in point three here, this third you must is you've got to commit in your soul that I'm not going to be controlled by fear. 
when I have the opportunity, I'm going to take one of these convictions that I've been neglecting, that I haven't really ever thought about. I'm going to memorize this. And when I talk to that person, I'm going to be praying for an opportunity. And because of this truth, because Christ deserves glory, because hell is real, I'm going to step out and open my mouth for Christ. Commit to act by faith, not by your feelings, not by your fears. Let truth govern your behaviors, even when you are afraid. And that is the only way you will slay your idols. It's the only way to topple an idol and worship Jesus. It's when we commit to act by faith and follow through, even when our knees are trembling. But this raises another question. How do I know what to say and how to say it? Right? So we're going to talk about that next week. How do I know what to say? How do I know how to say it? That's, that's exactly where we're going next week, the content of, of our speech. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your patience with us as your people, how we, we often struggle with fear in this area. And yet these are the opportunities you've given us to solidify our faith to step out, share the glorious news of the gospel. And you promise fruit. You promise great fruit for your people who abide in you in John 15. And part of that fruit is people come to faith in Christ. And so we pray that you would embolden us, help us to identify our idols, help us to overcome fear as we rely on your, these truths, these convictions, and help us to step out in faith. Continue to equip us, Lord, in this series as we learn um, we get more discernment on how to, how to speak the gospel with clarity and conviction and compassion um, as, we, as we think through strategies for how to do this in the coming weeks. But Lord, this is the crux of it. This willingness to, to trust you and trust what you say and step out um, with an open mouth uh, for the sake of Christ. So I pray that you establish this in our hearts and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.